Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, uh, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Filipino-American fiction writer, writer Mia Alvar. Alvar's collection of short stories, In the Country, won the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut fiction, the University of Rochester's Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize, and the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award. Alvar gave a reading at the University of Oregon on February 22nd, 2018, as a guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thank you, Mia, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us first about your family's journey to the United States. So my family uh, took a while to get here. I was born in the Philippines, lived there until the age of six or so. And then my family moved for uh, a job opportunity for my father um, in Bahrain in the Middle East. We were there for four years, and then my mother decided to go to graduate school uh, in New York. And so we ended up on the Upper West Side, and I lived there for a very long time until moving to Los Angeles recently. So how did you come to be a writer? What was your journey to writing? I think I was always kind of inspired uh, in a copycat sort of way whenever I read. Um, so I hear about writers who, um, who are, you know, passionate readers as children but never really think of it as something they might do themselves until later. Um, it was a little bit different for me. Both my parents were uh, primary school teachers. So, um, you know, my, their students were kind of making books in class all the time. Um, I was reading a lot. Uh, I never thought of it as something uh, separate from me. And I always felt like I wanted to at least try to imitate whatever it was I was reading. So did you start writing when you were very young? I think so. I think it, I believe it may have been around the time or shortly after I, I learned to read um, or kind of going hand in hand with that. Um, you know, not saying these were publishable attempts, <laughs> but <laughs> just little, just attempts at, at copying what I was seeing and, and was inspired by. So the debut volume in the country is a collection of short stories. So what is it about the genre of the short story, the form of the short story that appeals to you? So I started writing a lot of those stories in late college and um, grad school years. And this was in the in sort of mid to late 90s, um, there were short story collections coming out like Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies and Juno Diaz's Drown. And um, I, I was actually a poet before I tried to become a fiction writer, mm. but I had taken this trip to the Philippines and had this material I didn't know what to do with. And it was reading those collections that made me think about writing fiction that didn't center around one protagonist over many, many pages, but covering or um, telling the story of a community through many different perspectives. And that really appealed to me because I felt like I had stories from throughout my childhood, um, characters that I wanted to play with, 
um, I, I really didn't want to commit to um, a single perspective, even though the stories are long and I got a lot of feedback over the years uh, <laughs> telling me that maybe this was a novel. Um, I, I still really, really was set on that uh, idea of the, the multiple perspectives and the self-contained. You, you uh, implied at the beginning of the, your answer that you had taken this trip to the Philippines after having not been there for a very long time, yes. is that right? So will you say just a little bit about how you made it sound as if that trip was really a kind of um, transformational experience for you in terms of your career as a writer. It was. Would you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so I didn't go on this trip intending to take notes or gather material or anything like that, especially since it was a personal trip. My grandmother was ill and, you know, the family thought um, it was a good time to go and she did end up passing away while I was there. But I hadn't been back to the Philippines in 16 years and suddenly all of the things I was seeing, particularly around uh, the practices of kind of seeing someone off um, mm -hmm. from this life, were so new and alien to me, although I know logically I must have been around <laughs> these practices when I was a child in the Philippines. Um, and so I couldn't help but take note of them and write some of the things I was seeing down. A lot of them ended up in the first story in my collection, The Contrabida. And um, I, I think, you know, yeah, what the, the notes I took on that trip, when I brought them back to the U.S. And, and went back into my sort of everyday college life, uh, still thinking that I was a poet, um, I tried to write about them in this, you know, in this form that I knew, and I noticed that m my poems were becoming a little more narrative, mm -hmm. a little more linear, and focused on people and characters, and that was when I realized uh, maybe I was another sort of writer. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the contrabida. Would you re read a little bit of it? Sure. So this is just from the beginning of the story. My mother was waiting in front of our house when I rode up in a taxi. There you are, she said, as if we'd simply lost each other for an hour or two at a party. I only half embraced her, afraid she might break if I held too tight. She hadn't been able to collect me from the airport herself. Years ago, my father had forbidden her to drive, though I supposed he could do little to prevent it now. Let me, she said, reaching for my suitcase. I waved her away. I would no sooner allow my mother to carry my suitcase than allow her to carry me. Oh, Steve, she protested, you don't know my strength. She dropped her arms, flattening the palms against her lap, a habit I remembered well. Throughout my childhood, she often looked to be drying her hands on an apron, whether or not she was wearing one. In the decade since I left, she hadn't aged exactly. To my eyes, she seemed not older, but more. More frail, more tired, softer spoken, her dark teaspoon-shaped face cast farther down. 
Every feature I remembered had settled in her and been more deeply confirmed. My parents still lived in Mabini Heights, a suburb of Manila and monument to a time when they belonged to the middle class. My father had called himself an import-export businessman before sliding through the years down a spiral of unrelated jobs, each more menial than the last and harder for him to keep. And my mother had been a nurse before he banned her from working outside the house altogether. But if they'd come down in the world, so had Mabini Heights. Ever since my childhood in the 70s, when so much of that middle class fled Marcos and martial law, houses had been left unfinished or carved up for different uses. Squatters set up camp amid the scaffolding and roofless rooms. Families took in boarders or relatives. Our house had changed too. On its right, a gray, unpainted cinder block cell had been added, taking up what used to be a yard. My parents had cemented over the grass and built this Sari Sari store five years earlier, selling snacks and other odds and ends through a sliding wicket to people on the street. The Sari Sari compromised what I imagine was the dream of my parents, who grew up poor, a green buffer between the world and their world. The addition seemed to shrink the main house to a toy, its windows tiny and its clay roof something storybook elves might have built. Next to it, I felt gigantic. I hunched my shoulders as I followed my mother inside. I was convinced, walking behind her, that the dishes on the shelves were rattling. Papa's in here, said my mother, opening the door to my old bedroom. The blast of cold came as a shock, then a relief. There was an air conditioner now, in the window under which I used to sleep as a child, and my old bed, where my father lay, was pushed into a corner. I saw from the straw mat rolled up beside him that my mother had been sleeping on the floor at night. Otherwise, the room was clean and bare and quiet, as I remembered. Same white cinder block walls, same wood-tiled floors, same smell of mothballs from the same chest of drawers, if all faded a little, like an old photograph. My mother kept a tidy house, a trait we shared, and things probably lasted longer in her care. Two oxygen tanks stood beside my father's bed. He breathed through a tube. The sight of him brought me back to New York, where I lived, and to the hospital where I worked as a clinical pharmacist. My father no longer resembled me. The short boxer's physique, a bullish muscularity I'd always detested sharing with him, was gone. In fact, he no longer resembled anyone in the family. He belonged now to that transnational tribe of the sick and the dying. Without the dentures he'd worn most of his adult life, my father's mouth was a pit, a wrinkled open wound below the nose. What I could see of his eyes, under lids that were three-quarters closed, did not appear to see me back. He looked not only thin, but vacuum-dried, desiccated, less a human than the prehistoric remains of one. He groaned, a low and heavy sound. All right, Papa, all right. My mother took a brown dropper bottle from a chair next to the bed. This used to hold him for a while, she said, but lately he's complaining round the clock. Steadying his chin, she released a dose of liquid morphine into his mouth with the dainty caution of a woman ladling hot soup 
or lighting a church candle. He let out another groan. Shh. She stroked the sides of his face. Even bedridden and in pain, my father had managed to preserve their old arrangement. When he called, she was there to wait on him. I'd predicted this and how much I would hate to watch. In my suitcase, I carried an answer. Sucarol was the newest therapy for chronic pain on the market in America. White and square, the size of movie ticket stubs, Sucarol patches adhered to the skin, releasing opiates much stronger than morphine. Doctors had just started prescribing them to terminal patients in New York. Sucarol could take years to reach the Philippines, a country whose premier pharmacy chain boasted Laging Bago Ang Gamot Dito as its tagline. We do not sell expired drugs here. Still, something kept me from unpacking the patches right then. I did not want my mother to see my hands shaking, to know what I had done to bring them here in the first place, let alone the price I'd pay if anyone found out. Thank you very much. Sure. So there's many, many things that to, to say about your work, and that story raises many of these questions. But I guess I'll start with um, one of the things that's really striking about the work, for me at least, is that your characters and and this, as the story, the, the reading, reading you just did makes clear is that the, the stories often are, they're written in the first person, they're very close to individual people mm -hmm. and what's happening in their individual lives in particular moments of stress or tension or crisis. But there are these very large historical, political, economic forces or factors that are intersecting with these lives, migration, economic inequality, um, political exile, um, the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. But you always sort of are focused on these people. Why is this, why is this the, the way that you sort of, why are you interested in the intersection of history and individuals and individual lives? Why is that important for you? Well, I think part of it is um, personal makeup. <laughs> uh, I think whenever I watch the news or uh, or read an article, um, I, you know, I I'm interested in learning the statistics and and all of that. Um, but I always my my mind and my curiosity always goes to what individuals uh, in a particular situation are going through. Um, when I'm wondering about a certain time period historically, I, it's the day-to-day -day things that I want to know, how much things cost, mm -hmm. uh, what people did for fun. Um, and that uh, carried over into my fiction, I think. Um, uh, you know, an example would be with um, these men and women who are known as overseas Filipino workers or, or overseas contract workers from the Philippines. Uh, a, a lot of them started making that migration, particularly to the Middle East in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it, the the context of that is fascinating to me. The you know the oil boom in the Middle East and then the martial law in the Philippines kind of um, affecting the economy there to the extent that people were having a hard time finding jobs at home. But um, 
beyond that, you know, when I thought about my, my own father, my uncles, um, people outside of my family, it, it really is the personal that, <laughs> that I wonder about. Um, again, what, what they did for fun, um, you know, in this, uh, in this country, uh, in their new countries. Um, so, so I think it's partially uh, how I'm built and, um, and my own memory of uh, things that struck me as a reader um, and remembering as a child, uh, you know, reading things like, the, you know, the diary of Anne Frank mm -hmm. and, and being, realizing for the first time that, you know, the things that were happening in the news or in history weren't mm -hmm. sort of out there, but actually were happening to individuals and families. So there are a couple of stories that really make this point in, in interesting ways. One is Old Girl. Mm -hmm. So say a little bit about that story. Tell us about those people. So um, Old Girl is a story about a marriage. Uh, that's how I think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, in, in the book on the page there, the man and the husband and wife are just referred to at, by their nicknames for each other, so dad and mommy, respectively. Um, and uh, I intended uh, I intended the background to be a sort of sort of an inside joke for Filipinos um, and anyone familiar with um, recent Philippine history. Because um, you know, as you read along in the story, uh, certain details about this man and woman emerge um, that he was a former senator exiled from the Philippines, um, that you know that you know the president sort of has it in for him and that kind of thing that that um, anyone who's familiar with that time period will know I'm talking about um, the Aquinos, um, Ninoy and, and Cory. Um, of course, um, Ninoy who was assassinated and, and Cory who ended up um, becoming the president of the Philippines herself after martial law was lifted. Um, so again, yeah, I think that's a, a perfect example of how I, um, I felt that the job of documenting this family journalistically and historically had already been done and, mm -hmm. and done well. Um, and they were also um, such, uh, and, and still are, such kind of mythological creatures mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in, in Philippine, among Filipinos. Um, so I, I wanted to take a, a very kind of um, personal look at their marriage and a time in their life that always fascinated me. Um, I think till till the day she died, Cory Aquino referred to those three years in Boston as the most peaceful time in her life. She would have loved to just be a housewife there for the rest of her life, but that's not <laughs> where history took her. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I wanted to know what, I, I, I wanted to imagine what might have happened behind closed doors, although um, you know there are things in there that are clearly not true. <laughs> not true, but a, w a wonderful, a fascinating story, really a wonderful story. Thank you. Um, you often write um, from the point of view of the first person singular, the I, and uh, this is obviously is very consistent with your interest in the personal and the intimate, but in a, in a 
couple of the stories you you don't write in that, and you write in un unusual from unusual perspectives. So, in Shadow Families, the story Shadow Families that's narrated in the first person plural perspective, we, mm -hmm. and in Esmeralda, it's narrated in the second person, you. Those are, neither of those are common in fiction. So, say a little bit about your interest in exploring these unusual. Um, points of view in your narratives. Yeah, so those were two stories where I knew from the beginning that I wanted to at least try <laughs> to um, play with these uh, less common perspectives. With Shadow Families, I was drawing a lot from my memories of my um, time, my few childhood years in Bahrain, and it was the the closeness and sometimes oppressive or complicated closeness <laughs> of this expat Filipino community. And in thinking about that, it, it, it really felt like it was a story about community, about groupthink and um, <laughs> and you know clannishness. So um, so it made sense to me to to kind of try, Try that perspective, and and you know, um, I things changed along the way. It was a little closer to me at first. I, th I believe it was told from the point of view of the teenage children mm -hmm. at first, and then I changed it to the mothers. Um, with Esmeralda, also, I um, the earliest drafts were in the second person. I got some terrible feedback about that choice, and. Mm. Um, you know all the the common complaint about second person in you know in a fiction writing workshop is sort of um, you know it uh, I feel the reader feels a little bit um, bullied mm. um, by the second person and mm. and um, you know and and is kind of arguing the whole time that no I'm not doing this um, or I'm not uh, this person. Um, but because, so I ch actually changed it back. I, I thought, you know, maybe this needs to be in a more traditional point of view. Um, but later when I figured out that the story was going to be set during 9-11, um, and, you know, I, I had gotten to know this character, Esmeralda, a little bit more, I switched it back and I decided it was okay with me if people felt like they were being forced into her perspective. Um, I thought it's a perspective that people don't, maybe don't often um, choose to, to enter. Um, and it was also an event that, um, unless you were there, uh, is probably not so easy to access. So um, I decided to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's that story is an amazing story, and I'm glad you kept it in the second person. It's much more interesting. I mean, it's also a love story, which makes the second person more interesting. It seems to me that that the reader is implicated in the love affair. Mm. On the topic of love in your stories, I mean, these stories are often that one, for example, that doesn't have a happy ending. Right. Um, and I don't think happy endings are part of your what you're trying to accomplish in this volume, but. Love is there again and again and again in all these different configurations between brothers and sisters, lovers, romantic uh, husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit about the importance of love in your vision. 
Yeah, um, I. First of all, I didn't really realize until after the fact that there was no happy ending in, in the book <laughs> until people pointed it out to me and, and said these were dark stories. Um, but it's it's definitely true, and I think um, I think those kind of darker or more complicated or not quite um, perfect endings feel truer to life to me, um, truer to these characters. Um, but I, I think that alongside that, it, it makes perfect sense to me that um, that these connections would be important. Um, and the fact that they're not, they're sort of found in the unexpected places. Mm -hmm. So um, outside of marriage, um, in, in this, uh, in the example of that story, Esmeralda, um, you know, outside of one's blood relatives. Um, and, I, and I think all of that sort of goes hand in hand with um, the, uh, the search for home in these stories, which, um, you know, home is something that eludes these characters. Um, but it, it, you know, it's sort of they're going through this very human experience of, of separating from their families and and not you know belonging in their in their new place. But also, um, I also think it's true that humans kind of adapt in interesting ways, and um, and I think the recurrence of love is an example of that, people connecting across, um, you know, boundaries that are, are kind of uh, thought of as not crossable, <laughs> um, or, you know, people, fe people finding home, you know, outside of their, you know, original geography or outside of their, you know, family situation. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the volume is very effective at at, that, at rendering those kinds of moments, those kinds of experiences. So we just have about a minute and a half left. I think this will probably be the last question. But you were just talking about crossing boundaries and about these relationships that are established across boundaries where the people who are experiencing them often wouldn't have expected. I mean, in, the, in Esmeralda, for example, I, I think neither of these characters w would have expected that this relationship could have developed between them. Right. Talk a little bit about your aim or your hopes for the relationship that the volume establishes with readers? What kind of, how do you understand that? What are you hoping that this book does for your readers? What do you hope that teaches them or shows them? <laughs> um, I would hope that, well, I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to plot and that kind of thing. So. Um, part of me just hopes that people are sufficiently wondering what happens next <laughs> enough times to get to the end of the book um, <laughs> because I <laughs> I still you know I still read in that way um, you know for uh, for suspense and and just kind of interest in in the story events um, I guess I hope you know to go back to um, you know Esmeralda I hope that it at least inspires curiosity um, about people and perspectives that are maybe not the reader's own. Um, and if they are the reader's own, some kind of 
recognition or or new insight or um, or kind of light shed on on what might be a familiar experience. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to kind of get underneath um, official narratives. So whether it's um, hero, the Corazon Aquino um, and Ninoy Aquino, the heroes, or OFWs, the self-sacrificial um, kind of martyrs for their family. Um, so I wanted um, people who are familiar with those narratives to see them complicated a little bit, and people who aren't familiar to um, maybe be a little more curious and perhaps learn something. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. I will tell you that for me at least, the book succeeds in those goals thank very you. well. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to speak with us of today. Of course, thank you. I've been speaking with Mia Alvar, author of the acclaimed short story collection In the Country. Alvar gave a reading at the University of Oregon on February 22, 2018 as a guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching. Music